It always weirds me out a little bit when I have a film like this that I'm covering, which I have just precious little behind-the-scenes material of. Now, I do have access to, like, the deleted scenes and a couple little featurettes that come with it, but... And, and I do try to search through interviews, you know, makings of, all that kind of stuff. That's that's the usual stuff that goes into the research portion of these ruminations. I just, I just couldn't find anything. So we're just going to kind of jump into this a little bit. Uh, Brian Fee is the one who was heading this one. His only directing uh, talent to date. And he's someone who's been involved with the Pixar team since Cars 1. And they really wanted to focus back on McQueen and kind of abandoned 2 in its entirety. Which is interesting, since two was two. They also already had a story idea because they wanted to have this big thing about Doc Hudson, which was supposed to be in two, if you remember, and they axed it because they felt it got in the way of the three other stories they were doing, all of which centered around Mater. So they're like, okay, we're going to focus on this particular story idea, and we're going to go ahead and push it. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And well, I mean, they they ran into the same problem they did last time. The main character they were focusing the story on was voiced by someone who was no longer alive. I'm sorry to say that so coldly, but I don't know how better to put that. It, that's They didn't... <laughs> you'd think that would have been a thing walking into it, but they still wanted to focus on that, so they're like, well, how do we do this? <sighs> okay. Why don't we go ahead and focus on the the side of the person who was left behind? And we'll just tell the story that way, which... Fair enough. You know, that's a decent enough idea. I still think I might have wanted to restructure this a little bit, but I'll get to that in just a moment. They also uh, really started using the RIS system, which is the RICS Integration Subsystem. Now, they actually used this back in Finding Dory as well, just to a lesser extent. The whole point of this system, and this is something that, believe it or not, I've used in my actual show to a much, much less extent as well, obviously. But the point is, what it does is it renders it while you're animating. That That's really, you know, it. Obviously, that is a much more complex and involved thing than you'd think. But the benefit of that, and I've actually talked about this concept before, is that because they could render the full scene as they're animating it, the animators had a better chance in looking of, of what exactly it is they're looking at well, maybe this would look better at this angle. Let's move this a little bit over here. This lighting doesn't work, etc. Because prior to now, they had that fast animating system, or fast rendering system, excuse me, which I actually had already talked about, which sped it up, but both there and before both still involved the same problem. Render, setup, walk away from the computer, come back a couple days later, see what the scene looks like, nitpick a little bit, right, and try and edit it and work with it. So this, this is going to sound like a strange thing, because this is a great tool, obviously. Again, I've used this myself. If you, again, you see those uh, the Star Trek opening shots where there's the CGI ship going through, that, that stuff. But um, while this is a fantastic tool and works very well, what it ultimately involves, really, is making these films cost less. Because it means less time spent rendering, less time, well, less time period, which translates directly into money when it comes to making a film. So they were in they they've managed to reduce the cost of future films. That's a good thing, right? The reason I'm so hesitant on this and I don't know if this is true is because this kind of a thing is a great excuse to force employees to work more and longer hours without breaks. Now I don't know if they've done that. But that is the kind of thing that probably shouldn't be done, ever, unless you have a very extreme circumstance, which, let's be honest, making a film is never going to be. So, anyways, with all that out of the way, we get into it. We see 
some immediate camaraderie between McQueen, Bobby, and Cal, who's the son of Weathers from back in the first film. And they're all doing their thing. Everything's cool. Chick Hicks, who is no longer voiced by Michael Keaton because he's busy being the best version of the Vulture ever, was uh, is, is now a car show host and continues to be a dick because, of course, he does. I'm not sure how he got the funding to do that, but let's just move on. And then we see the next generation of cars. Now, here's this is this is where this analogy, like already, this analogy falls apart. By the way, I'm going to go and be honest. I didn't like this film. I wanted to. God, I wanted to. But there were so many things in the way of me enjoying this film. The biggest and most obvious is the fact that they didn't use their premise. They, one of the things fiction tends to do a little bit too much, and I have pointed this out in previous Pixar films, is they present a fantastical scenario relate it to a real-life scenario, and then write the story for the real-life scenario, even when it doesn't actually make sense for the fantastical. You know, I, I've briefly called this the Matrix problem, but really, this is a very common problem in fiction. Well, if this is like this, then we just write this, and it's like, well, but... But it's... but it, So what they wanted was they wanted this big story about the new generation and the younger cars and how the up-and-coming rookies are just better and the old people are getting old and tired. And Yeah, that applies to a human being. Cars, not so much. Now, I know what you're thinking. Lore, cars do get old. And yeah, they do. And if you want an older car to stay relevant, you know what you do? You replace its parts. I mean, my car's a 95, for God's sakes, and I'm pretty sure less than half of it is the original parts at this point. Now, this is... Um, now. Okay, so I'm, I'm acting all derisive now, obviously. But at the time when I'm watching it, remember, I haven't really seen this film before. You know, I, I've, I've seen bits and pieces of it with my niece, as I've said before. This is the last asterisk haven't seen. After, that, it's, after this, it's just films I play now, haven't seen, period. But uh, So I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I wasn't aware where they were going with it. So I'm like, okay, you want to have the generational thing, you know, the old being replaced by the new, especially in a sports or competitive level. Okay, that makes sense. There's a lot of things they could have done here. They also kind of highlight the new parts and the new tech as being the reason the younger cars are better. It's not the fact that they're younger. It's not the fact that McQueen is older. It's the fact that they have better tech. Technology has moved forward. My first and immediate question is who exactly is building these cars, but considering they have shown ever since Cars 1, and indeed was the original point in Cars 1, and this even shows up in planes, so this is canon one way or the other, you can just swap out parts. You, you can just replace parts of these people, as long as that core engine or core unit or whatever it's called remains the same, the body that they are that is built around them doesn't matter. That's an established point by this point. So I'm thinking, okay, this is cool. There's a lot of potential here. And this is actually what's going through my head. Um... So McQueen's going to have to get new hardware and a new chassis, and that's, you know, they're going to have to replace certain things. That's, that's, that's cool. You know, there's some interesting ideas. Um, maybe they could go with, well, hang on. Do I write about that now or later? Where did I write that? I know, then, I know I wrote this down somewhere. Hang on, let me check my notes. <laughs> nope, yep, there it is. Okay, so it's a cool idea. Let's come back to that, because I want to talk about something else first. So, one of the main points that they wanted to push in this film was they actually reached out to talk to several competitive sports players. And what they responded was a very common thing. It was a very normal uh, response, which was, why would I ever want to stop 
doing whatever this sport is. You know, why would I ever want to stop running? Why would I ever want to stop racing? Why would I ever want to stop playing baseball, etc.? This is the only thing I could ever see myself doing, is a direct quote. And I actually understand that completely. I have my own terminology for it, but I call that a career. Now, I know what you're thinking. Of course it's a career, but what I mean by that is there's your job, right? That's something you do for money. You don't really care about it. You could do your best, but ultimately it is just your job. You're never going to be invested in it. Then here's your work. Now, work is a little bit broader of a category, but work is the stuff you really care about. If you're fortunate, if you're extremely blessed, like I am, I will absolutely admit, then you can do your work and still get paid for it. You know, a lot of people do their work and then do their job to afford their work, right? Whether it's a hobby or an interest or whatever. But then you've got your career. That's the third level. That's the highest tier. A career is the long term. I am in what I am wanting to do for the remainder of my life. And I have managed to turn it into a feasible profession that I can make money off of. And this is it. This is the roots. This is the long term. So that idea of a career makes perfect sense. Now, considering the film is focusing very heavily on these people who are really into their careers, in this case of racing, you could see how that idea presents itself. Okay, so we've got another interesting idea. You're moving on. You're being replaced, you're getting old, but this is your career, so what do you do? Now, feel free to pause the video here, but how many, what's your answer to that? Just picture something. Picture you found your career, as I define it, and you're really into it, and you're really invested, and it's just passing you by. What do you do? Now, I came up with a few ideas, but the obvious ideas are so obvious I felt silly for writing them down. You can teach about your career, whatever it is. It's engineering, you know, it's, it's microchip manufacturing, it's about historical presence, it's about writing, maybe, racing, you know, whatever. You could teach, you could train, become a trainer, become someone who uh, tutors the younger generation and all the things you have learned in your career. You can study it to learn even more about it, to, to, to just in, enrich your own understanding of what it is you're really into. And, of course, you can share about it. Sharing is the harder one to explain, but for example, maybe you were, I don't know, streaming video games on Twitch, just to use a random example here, as something you could do to share something that you would consider your career. And you get the idea. There, are, These are just the random options that came to mind right off the top of my head. So then we see Jackson Storm. Why is he an asshole? I'm going to come back to that point, but let, let's just, let's just, whatever. So then they show the crash. Now, this crash is brilliant. It is shown as exactly as horrific as it should be. It's also probably one of the better scenes in the film. And the lead-up to it is good. We've got the, the... The intro part of the film is actually quite good. It's one of the reasons this film doesn't qualify for lamentation status, because ultimately this film sucks. But, you know, we've got this whole lead-up section where we've got the montage... Or not the montage... It is a montage. We've got the montage. We've got the camaraderie. We've got the generations passing by. We've got McQueen. He loses himself in the moment, which means he loses his tires, he loses his grip, and he has a horrific and damaging crash, which, by all accounts, he should barely have walked away from. Obvious parallels to Hudson, and we're moving on. Now, he is smashed after that wreck, right? Why is that relevant? Well, it means they had to replace his chassis. You see, as soon as I see that wreck, I'm like... They're doing it. They're actually doing the replacement parts storyline. That's that's really cool. That actually that makes perfect sense, and that's exactly how they should do it. Um, so I'm with it. Cool. So they're going to replace him, and it's going to be cool. And then and then no, they're going to pull the Rocky Four trick. 
before I move on, I know what you're thinking. Lore, just replacing his parts wouldn't make for a good story. L allow me to professionally disagree. But once again, I'm going to ask you a question like I like to do. You are tasked with presenting a story based on this replacement parts idea. And so you have to do this going forwards. What do you do with it? Feel free to pause the video to comment if you want. I came up with another quick and dirty couple of examples here right off the top of my head. Um, let's go with just two, because these are the two big ones, I think. First of all, getting acclimated to the new parts. He feels different. It feels wrong and weird, and he starts to get just a little bit disassociative. That's not... You know, he looks in the mirror, that's not me. That's not me. No, McQueen, no, that's not me. That's not, you don't understand. And he starts to flip out a little bit about it. And he has to come to grips with this idea because he's never done this. Part of the story idea could then be, same, follow some of the similar beats as he goes and follows through Hudson's path. Maybe find out that Hudson went through the same issues because Hudson went through a horrific wreck too. He had to have some parts replaced too. He had to have a complete chassis overhaul, right? And so he, he traces Hudson's path back to, um, uh, oh God, I can't remember, Smokey. Smokey and that then one little town in the middle of nowhere. And this is when we have the moment where the old cars mention that, yeah, we all go through that moment when we have to replace a chunk of ourselves. And maybe you're different, maybe you're not. And, and you know, you get the idea of how that could kind of flow through as, as a, a, a way of trying to, I, I don't know how to phrase this. It's a little transhumanist, I know, which is weird because we're talking about cars. But it, it, I stand by the statement. Transcarist? And it could show that this is something that cars kind of have a choice of in this universe. A little bit of world building in the background. Some of them insist on keeping their old parts. And I can point to one of the, one of the old racers and say, you know, Bob over there. He never replaced any of his old parts. He's still got all his old dents. And, well, that's, that's him and that's he. Me? I wanted to, I wanted to still be me. I wanted to still race. I want to still get out there and do. I'm not going to let time take that away from me. Yeah, sure. That's not the same me I saw in the mirror 20 years ago, but that's still me. And of course, this dovetails into my other idea perfectly. And you can do both of these at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. Identity. Now, Pixar is no stranger to doing identity as a major theme. But you could see the idea and how this could be so, sort of a subplot, something that just kind of starts to bother McQueen and something that the Cars people in general have sort of become acclimated to as a regular existential problem that they have to deal with. How do they define who they are? How do they define whom they are? Because they exist in a world where they could just, you could take their body and shove it into a freaking forklift. So, <laughs> who are you? Who is McQueen, you know? Now, that would take away from certain elements of the story, I'll admit it, but I think that would make for a much more interesting and, frankly, more uh, engaging story than this one. It would also mean McQueen could still have his moments with Cruz, who is this brand new car who's never dealt with any of this stuff, and tries to help him through this because, well, see, the thing is, you would barely have to change her character. But Lore, I hear you say, she's a trainer. Two points. First of all, no, she's not. She's much more of a counselor than she is a trainer. You may argue semantics there, and I will I will acquiesce to that. But my point is that a lot of her training tends to be more mentally focused than physically focused. Trying to get your head in the game, trying to get your, your mind space where it needs to be so you can do what you can do, what you are capable of doing. 
you could see then how Cruz being attached to the struggling McQueen, who's either having parts issues, identity issues, or both, would then make perfect sense. And she's trying to help him through this. And we could still keep the thing about her wanting to be a racer. This would then tie in, once again, to the identity theme. The idea that she identifies, I don't have a better way to put that, as a racer. That that's her thing, that's her shtick, and that's what she's always wanted to do. But instead, she just helps other people because she never took her shot. And thus McQueen, at the end, even though his new parts are working, he's like, all right, her, make her do it. I mean, she's a Jaguar F-type, for God's sake. She could probably manage. (laughs) Put her out in the ring. Give her her shot. And then you see how you wouldn't even have to change the story that much to restructure it to fit these beats a little bit differently. Those are my ideas. Feel free to poo-poo them as per your preference. (sighs) Anyways. Gush, gush, gush. I need to gush about the terrain some more. The beach, the the, the mud pit, the the frickin' area, the, the old track they go on. Oh, my God. However, I do have to once again mention the old dinosaur problem, or the good dinosaur problem, excuse me. Because Cars has, has been a technical impressment ever since Cars 1. Impressment? It has been a thing that has impressed me ever since Cars 1. But... I think the terrain has advanced faster than the cars themselves. The cars themselves still look rather cartoony by design, but the terrain looks real. And again, I start to run into a little bit of the good dinosaur problem where it's just like, eh. and there's some scenes where it just starts to conflict and contrast and it just doesn't work. And my mind's going, again, anybody else have that issue? Anyways, so <clears throat> Nathan Fillion shows up as Sterling, based on a BMW CS vintage concept. Now, that's appropriate. If you don't get the joke, first of all, BMW, but second of all, he's a vintage concept. A brand new car designed and styled like an old car. Get it? Now, what's weird is he's not a villain. That's important. I want you to remember that. He really isn't at this point in the movie. He is a decent dude, who is just trying to, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a racing enthusiast, he's a geek, and he's got all this brand new tech and all this new stuff, and he's trying to push things, and he's, he's a big fan of McQueen personally, big fan of Hudson. I want you to remember that for later, okay? This then leads to the training sequence. We introduce Cruz, and uh, she, don't worry, she's not a racer, she's a trainer, even though the first thing we see about her is that she managed 193 without even really trying on the simulator. Right. Now, this is when I mentioned the, the counselor thing. Again, in real life, having a good counselor to help you work through mental issues is actually invaluable to competitive performers. Uh, so, yeah, no, that, that tracks, and I'm completely with that. Um, side note, can we get over making fun of people for taking naps? I mean, it, it, I, I more see that in fiction than real life, but there's still a little bit of that, at least here in the States, there's a little bit of that cultural bias against napping. Like, oh, yeah, sure thing, old man, go ahead, take your nap. Can we just get away, do away with that, really? Instead of perceiving that as being lazy, maybe see it as seeing something, I don't know, maybe better for the mental and emotional and physical health of the person who's doing it. I don't know, I'm a little bit biased here because I work 12-hour days, but the point is... I do take a nap every day, and I, I have had to struggle with the bias I have received for how silly it sounds to say that. And I admit I get defensive even admitting it because of how much pushback I tend to get about that. And fiction like this makes my point for me because it portrays it like a joke. Ah, there's just something wrong with you because you need a nap because you're old. 
Instead of, you know, being a way to recharge your batteries and degauze for a minute and come back fresh, which is what a nap is. <sighs> okay, rant off. But she's old. He's old. He's old. He's old. He's old. He's old. He's old. And he's old. Oh, my God. You remember how I complained back in Cars 2 about the repeated joke thing? They didn't learn their lesson, at least not in this film. They did They did a better job of that over in Inside Out with the triple mint gum thing. But here, they just, they just cannot stop making old jokes. Hey, you're old. Hey, you're old. Hey, you're old. At three separate parts in my notes, I just write down the word old, old, old. Because they were just doing it again, just hammering that joke in. And I'm sick of it. Moving on. So, this then leads to McQueen being an idiot. Not for the first time in this film, and not for the last. So because he's a moron, he decides to trash and wreck a multi-million dollar piece of equipment because he didn't want to work his way up to the, to the big, extensive stuff. Now, you'd think McQueen, of all people, would know this. You don't just go out on the track and immediately are amazing at something. You, you train, you work up, you build up to it. Right? And they say this in the film straight up. Let's pull this back. We'll work you up to the, you know, we'll, we'll get you up to this level. And McQueen is just, no, no, I've got this. I've got this. And he absolutely 100% doesn't and makes a complete mess of everything. Now keep this in mind. Despite the fact that he sucks and he just wrecked a multi-million dollar machine that everyone was super impressed by, Sterling doesn't fire him on the spot, which he would be 100% in the right to do so, to be blunt. That, that This is literally cause for termination right here. And he could have also done a lot more worse things to him. But instead, he's like, let's go ahead and retire you, turn you into a brand. Now, this is portrayed as a bad thing. Why? I know. I know. <laughs> that sounds like a strange thing to say, because I just had that whole speech about careers. And, you know, this is obviously McQueen's career, and he obviously has a great passion for it, blah, blah, blah. But the reason I bring this up is that this is not Sterling being villainous. This is him being a good guy, you know, one of the uh, reasonable authority figures, as I believe the archetype. He has decided, okay, all right, I get it. We're going to pull you back. We're going to stop. You're not going to race anymore. And instead, you're going to sell all these brands and merchandise. This is going to be your legacy. We're going to make a lot of money off of it. It'll be cool. Got to pay off that device you just broke because of your stupidity. Sorry, I would be less kind than Sterling in this circumstance. And I'm, I'm... I'm told I'm a good boss. I'm told I'm a, you know, a nice boss. But I would be coming down on a ton of bricks on McQueen for this. So McQueen says, no, no, give me the chance, give me the chance. The race is the reward. And it's like, okay. Oh, yeah, by the way, I need to make a cars joke here because they want to turn McQueen into a merchandising brand thing. So, cars joke. All right, we're done. How did they afford to get in Lewis Hamilton for this? Actually, apparently they got in uh, uh, Alonzo as one of the actors as well in, in different countries to voice the, you know, the Hamilton mode. And so it's like Alonzo mode. That's just, that's just really cool. I mean, I don't like Hamilton. In fact, I can't stand Hamilton, but Alonzo's awesome. Anyways, <clears throat> so what's th th then the film starts to actually get good again. It, it's been just kind of aggravating. You know, it had a decent, strong opener. Then it got aggravating, but then it starts to be good again because what happens is he starts to train Cruz. And, I mean, actually train, you know, giving her, rather than just saying, no, you're doing it wrong, or no, get good. 
which I'm historically very against the phrase get good because the phrase get good does not invoke any information. It doesn't tell you anything. It's just telling you that you suck and no usefulness is conveyed. By contrast, what he does is actually say, okay, you need to try and watch this line. You need to get this particular bit of dirt on your, on your tires. You need to ease them into it. Otherwise you're just going to spin out. And he actually gives her real advice and actually trains her on racing on the sand. And she's really into it. Then, immediately after this, he goes right back into dick mode and becomes a rule zero violator. Meanwhile, she's enjoying racing. Huh. Then, they decide to sign up for an eight-track derby race without knowing or realizing it. The whole middle section of this film can go to hell. It's... I... It's kind of my job to explain why. So forgive me for floundering here. But it's a bunch of moments that are uh, designed for comedic effect, which is not necessarily a bad thing, by misunderstanding, which makes no sense, so that he can be a dick to her, which is aggravating, and she can re re realize how much she enjoys racing, which is good. And do you see the problem with how I explained all that? emotionally and in terms of how much it's pulling the audience into the moment, it's all over the place. It's just this... And that's the middle section of this film. And so the whole time I'm just sitting here going... Okay. Random world-building thought while they're going through the middle section. Any of you ever, uh, uh, I'll use a video game example, you ever play Gran Turismo's? The PS2 one is probably my personal favorite, even to this day. But part of that is because of the sheer level of options you had in customizing your car. You probably already see where I'm going with this. Because it's not just what your tires are, or what your engine is. There is so much. I, I cannot tell you all of the things you can customize in a car because the list would be so huge, and I don't have that memorized, Right? The, the plugs and the shocks and the angle and the torque and the PSI and the tires and just there's so, so, so many things you can do to adjust a car to fix it to exactly what you want it to be. This would be a cool world building point, I think, to develop this idea for cars and the idea that there is a huge market for not just the different parts, but for the customization of those parts, for, for t uh, tuning them. For tuning, yeah, that just, just straight up tuning. And there's so many different results that you want from that too, because it's not always about racing the best, because that concept doesn't exist. There's no such thing as best racing, because different races are different. A dirt track is going to be different than a tarmac, and then there's going to be some things which are far more focused on corners or different types of corners. Sometimes there's more marble involved. Sometimes you need really to actually push the power for those straightaways. Sometimes you're doing the, the straight up oval, like in the NASCAR style races. Sometimes you're doing more of a long term, term, uh, endurance race. So you need a completely different setup for that. You get my point. And all of that is just racing. Never mind hauling or, tractoring or, you know, needing the maximum amount of torque to be able to push an, enough of your horsepower onto the actual road, which is a huge issue for cars, by the way. For those of you not aware, I'm sorry for gushing a little bit. I am a bit of a car geek, as I've mentioned before. Just a little bit of one. And um, I, I love real racing car sims. I'm, I'm totally into it. And uh, 
and racing in general and just cars in general. It's fascinating mechanically stuff. But anyways, sorry, getting off the point. Getting the horsepower in the engine, that's easy. We've had the tech for decades to push out way more horsepower in the engine than what cars do. The problem is getting that horsepower to the, the ground. Because if you have a ridiculously powerful engine and then you hit go on the car, you're just going to spin your wheels. You need to have that grip. You need to have that downforce. You need to have the ability to push that torque onto the through through the system into the tires onto the ground to be able to go forward faster. And it's a huge engineering problem. And so all of this stuff could be the kind of things that they would could develop in the background, especially if they went with my idea of the different chassis parts. You know, maybe as they're going through, they see different people who tune different ways or or build different ways for different styles of things. Like, for example, a derby. Just random thought here. Anyways. So moving on, this then leads to him being a dick. This is the moment where I actually had to pause the film and take him and just walk away and be like, this is stupid. <laughs> this is actively stupid. He rants and yells at her while she is happy and enthusiastic about getting to do something that she loves, because his ideas that he pushed for are not working out for him, and he blames her for it. What an asshole. He's supposed to be the good guy, right? So, we smack him. Then she has her big thing. Dream small or not at all. I was going to do a whole speech about that. I've decided not to. That's a pretty complex topic. And whether it's right or not is more of an opinion thing than a fact thing. So let's let's just walk away from that. This is when I uh, decided to look up the kind of car she is. And like I said, she's, a, she's actually based on, excuse me, she's based on a Jaguar F-Type. And yeah, <laughs> I mean, she's a Jag for God's sakes. She's got some, she's got some horsepower under there. Then they show that there is a 1.2% chance of winning. Now, I found that interesting. Maybe this is just me and the way my mind works, and I have actually studied statistics, but 1.2% chance sounds like a small chance to win, but what's interesting is that it's a chance to win. <laughs> In just straight-up data. And I mention that because everything they've shown says that his chances to win should actually be 0%, that there is simply no possibility of him defeating uh, Storm, because Storm is just objectively superior in hardware, right? And that was the point they made over and over and over in the intro. But anyways. So then he does a song apology. I... I hate awkward cringe in fiction and in real life. Negative to story. Moving on. So, the, then the film actually makes me laugh. Somehow. <laughs> You're probably thinking, oh, what was the joke? What's the one that got you? When they finally find, uh, oh God, what's his name? Not Jackson, the, not Hudson, uh, Smokey. When they finally find Smokey, there's this bit where they're driving into the bar and they see this sign and the sign says, we've got a special right now. You buy two and then you pay for them. I don't know, that, that, that got a laugh out of me. That got a laugh out of me. Uh, this is also when I started to really notice the good dinosaur problem with the terrain just looking absolutely gorgeous and then having cartoons right on it. And like I said, it's just kind of... Not really a solvable problem at this point unless you want to make the terrain more stylized, which they could do. That is a fe feasibility. It's just whatever. Anyways, so... 
then, you know, we, we get on with this. Hudson never apparently told McQueen anything about how much he loved him or how it was the best time of his life. This is an important story beat so that McQueen can figure out the bleeding obvious that I've already pointed out to you before I even really knew where this film was going, which is, you know, study or teach or train, right? I already talked about that, or enthuse, share. And then they chop off her her muffler, and then they do they do the Rocky Four. They straight up, I was joking earlier, they do the Rocky Four montage. Now, I don't know if you've seen Rocky Four. That's the one where he's up against Ivan Drago, played by uh, Dolph Lundgren. Now, no offense to Dolph Lundgren, he's he's cool actually. I, I like him, but that film kind of sucks. And one of the biggest irritates, irritations for me about that film is Rocky, who is way out of shape, goes through this really down to earth, you know, oh, I'm gonna super train, and then he's going up against a guy who is objectively better than him. <laughs> and the and what I'm trying and I do want to stress this: the film shows that the film shows that he's got this super high tech thing with all this advanced equipment, and he's actually juicing at the same time. So he is being, you know, crafted to be a superior boxer. And then Rocky's off, like you know, hauling logs and stuff. And then Rocky wins, well, wins, but you know what I mean. And I don't know. I feel like that's a, it's a nice message to believe in, but I just I don't believe it for even a millisecond. You know, and fiction likes to pull that beat. How well they pull it off is really the question. Because sometimes, you know, the plucky underdog managing to outlast or outdo the superior force is something that can work. I should know, they did that in Rocky 1. So I like that kind of a story when it's done right. But when they pull a Rocky 4, or when they pull a Cars 3, I could use both of these examples at this point, it just feels like it's unearned. It feels like they go do all these random things... And in, in Rocky Four, at least, he was doing stuff that would train up his body, get his endurance up, for example. What the hell is McQueen learning by driving around in the dark in the woods and dodging bay ha- hails, hails of bay? Hails of bay? Really? Bales of hay. <laughs> the only things that they teach that might actually be worth a damn is starting from behind and having to catch up and finding the window. And that's that's kind of it. Whatever. I'm done. This, oh, I'm sorry. There's actually one other thing. They also showcase drafting. Now, this is actually amusing to me because it makes sense that McQueen would have never had to draft before. But you'd think he would know what drafting is since it's a pretty common thing in racing and and just whatever. So, Storm's a dick. Now, I want to comment on that really quick. I feel like Storm shouldn't be a dick in this film. First of all, we already got McQueen filling that position. But second of all, remember McQueen in the first film? How he was a dick? Well, there's one other thing about McQueen in the first film. It was his only redeeming trait. Do you remember what it was? I'll just tell you. He was a genuine geek. He really did love racing. And when he found out about Hudson, he just couldn't stop gushing about, Oh my God, you're the Hornet. You're incredible. <sighs> now, I bring that up. He also showed that even before the, the the end of the film when he had his character arc, he was still, you know, enthused to be around people like Carl Weathers. You know, it was just an honor to be around him because he was such a racing legend, because he was such a geek. He was into it. He was an enthusiast. So Storm is not. Storm is not a geek. He's not an enthusiast. He's just a dick. And there's no other character trait to him. And I feel like that was a misstep. 
I feel like the emotional punch of this film, I know I've already posited like five changes to this film at this point, but the emotional punches of the film would have worked better for me if Storm was not a dick at all. If he was legitimately respectful and legitimately enthused and actually excited to be there alongside the legendary McQueen and Cal and uh, Bobby and to actually be able to beat them was just one of the best moments of his life. It would help make the comp- situation more complex for both the audience and for McQueen because all of a sudden we're not just going against an obvious stereotypical bad guy but instead just the next generation and that would add a little bit of nuance to the pick instead he's a straight up villain he is the villain of this film and I I know I've talked a lot about villains and their purpose in Pixar films but I really feel like this is one that could have done without a villain because Storm straight up tries to murder cruise towards the end of the film by by scraping against the wall, which, by the way, I know I pointed this out in Cars 1 with the stuff that, uh, oh, what's his freaking name? I wrote down his name. Uh, Hicks. Chick Hicks was doing. How is that legal? If someone just starts smacking someone's leg during a 100-meter dash, and are they just going to allow that? Because that's kind of the equivalent of what he's doing here, except much worse, arguably. Anyways. <laughs> Whatever. So Storm becomes a straight-up villain. And so does Sterling. This comes out of absolutely nowhere. Again, Sterling was shown to be a genuine enthusiast earlier, really into it and actually making the museum and really excited. And then in the last five minutes, he suddenly becomes an antagonist for no perceivable reason. He, it's not even shown properly. It's just he's against the idea of them doing something ridiculous and stupid. Which, that makes him a villain. And then he's even portrayed as getting his comeuppance. Ha ha ha, he got bought out. <laughs> what? Where does that come from? Why do we suddenly need a villain in the fifth act? <sighs> Another villain, sorry, because we got two. Whatever. We have the montage, which is a bad montage. Doesn't show anything new. Doesn't portray anything. It's just a waste of time, as usual. And then they talk way too long about this, almost screw everything up because they spend so much time debating this. You're on a time crunch here, people. Then the uh they're shoving into the wall, there's a hi, I'm his lawyer, this is how this works. We've we all have a super happy ending. The end. I have one last thing to say about this film. Some people say that certain films are made only for the merchandising. And in some cases, that is absolutely correct. There are certain films that are made for the merchandising. Sometimes we get good films out of that. It has happened. And then sometimes we get cars. If you've ever wondered where the perspective is, where the import, where the primary priority is for the cars films, if you remember, at the end, McQueen shows up in a Hudson paint job, paint style, to honor Hudson and to kind of show that he has now taken the the task of being the trainer to pass on his thoughts to the future generation, which is a great moment and probably one of the only decent character bits in the entire film. But don't worry. Interviews have confirmed that was temporary. Don't worry. He will be right back to his normal paint job and any future stuff so that your McQueen cars and your McQueen toys and all that stuff, all that will stay on brand and will he'll still be you know, Mr. 95. Don't worry about it. I'm not making that up. You can look it up. (sighs) But we're done. We're done with the Cars films. None of them were quite Lamentations. Two came really close. (sighs) It's such a shame, too, because I really feel legitimately like the premise of Cars is great. 
What if cars were the dominant force on the planet? Bam! That is an excellent premise. And there's so much they could do with that. And so many ideas and so many cool visuals. And they could have it be about racing, which I love. And instead what we get is cars. Uh, but we're not quite done with the Pixar block left. We have a few more films left to go. I hope you've enjoyed thus far. I'll see you next time.